This morning we're going to look at one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It is central to everything that we have from Genesis to the book of Revelation. It is certainly central to the entire book of Romans. In fact, we have the heart of Romans in two little verses here. So I'm going to take our time in looking at it. And what's so important here is we need to have some clarity, understand. So we're going to look at just a few words. We're not even going to get through the whole passage. Because I think there's a lot of confusion in the body of Christ and especially outside in terms of these significant issues relating to salvation and how you come into a relationship with God. So I hope to try to bring clarity. I try my best to be as clear as we can and as accurate in defining words because they are so crucial and so important. And there's... Five major words, we're not going to look at all of them today, but we'll look at some of them that you need to understand as a believer in order to try to communicate to the unbelieving world. So we're not even going to get into 17, but we'll look at verse 16. I'll just kind of give you a quick look at both of those, but it's basically the essence of all of the book of Romans. That's why I call it essence introduction. And I think it's the essence of what God's heart is all about as well in terms of our relationship to him. So, very important passages set in the city of Rome, obviously. We've already seen a formal introduction that Paul has given. One sentence, seven verses, and in that he introduces us to the whole book. We have a personal introduction that we've been looking at the last few weeks, 8 through 15, two parts to it, prayers of praise, can't remember how I phrased it, that's 8 through 10, 11 through 15, purposeful plans, where he lays out his intentions, his plans in terms of the Romans, and now he's going to give us the essence of the whole book, and it actually flows from what he's just been talking about. We'll look at the first word there, so I call it essence introduction, 16 and 17. In that, you can break that down into two parts. I summarize all of verse 16 with the resource of God for deliverance. So, the resource of God, which is the gospel, that's the essence of verse 16, resource of God for deliverance or for salvation is the word that is used there. But I use deliverance because we have that word salvation. It's colored in our thinking. And we have a lot of preconceived ideas as to what that word means. And especially if you come from some backgrounds, that word is is not really clear. So deliverance is a better word. We're going to look at it carefully. And it's good to have a clear understanding of that in order to understand passages, and particularly in the book of Romans. So we're going to focus on that. And I've divided that into four parts. First of all, the first part is we have a resolve, I think, by Paul, stemming from confidence when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm going to explain how I get to that point when we look at that part of it. But like we look at every passage, you start by looking at complete sentences. Now, this isn't as complex 
as some of the ones that we've looked at in other sessions, particularly verses 1 through 7. Remember, that was just one sentence, so I had it all on one slide. Well, verse 16 is one sentence, both in the Greek and in the English text. And what would be the independent clause? Let me let you pull it out. You should include the four, but yeah, the essence of it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but include four, four, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, four oftentimes introduces a subordinate clause, but when it's at the very beginning, it's more introductory, and it ties it back to a previous context. So everything that we're going to talk about deals with Paul's relationship to the gospel. So all of verses 16 and 17, because 17 just kind of adds on, even though it's a separate sentence, dealing with the gospel at the heart of this passage is the gospel. At the heart of the book of Romans is the gospel, the idea of what it takes to bring a person into a saving relationship. We need to be clear on that. We need to be very tuned to what the scriptures teach concerning that word. Now, I'm going to look at the word ashamed as well. It's not as crucial and important as some of the others. We're going to look at gospel. We're going to look at power. We're going to look at salvation. We're going to look at believing. And then in the next passage, in verse 17, we're going to look at righteousness. What does that mean? That may be the hardest one. Although, gospel and salvation, I think we have it sometimes distorted in our thinking. So we want to be clear on it. And I want to spend some time looking at those words, how they're used elsewhere, and particularly how they're used in each individual context. That's what you want to aim for, is what is the meaning of this word in this particular context? And sometimes it's slightly different, and we'll see that. I'll try to illustrate that. So, the passage begins, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. First independent clause. Everything else is going to tell us something about the gospel and Paul's desire to communicate it. And when he says, I'm not ashamed of it, kind of giving his attitude or his perspective on it. So, we start with four. And like I said, it's introductory. So, when it says four, it goes back to verses 14 and 15 of the same context. You remember in that, he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul has a sense of obligation, a mission to them. This is why he exists, why he's on the earth. He's compelled to reach out to the two major, I guess you might say, factions of the first century. The Jewish people. And also all those that are non-Jews. So it included everyone. He feels an obligation, a compulsion. We looked at that in some detail. And then verse 15, thus for my part, in other words, what I'm all about, I am eager to preach the gospel. Now we have the verb form there. We'll come back to that as well. This is his desire to preach the gospel to Greeks or barbarians or to Gentiles and barbarians, but also it would include everyone else as well, Jewish people. So his eagerness to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, in other words, the audience 
that he's addressing this letter to. So the four goes back to that idea, and then it just leads into this idea with kind of the negative, or he takes it from the negative in terms of his attitude in terms of the gospel. So let's start off by looking at that word, not ashamed. I am not ashamed of it. Now, he's framing it in a certain way, and oftentimes in Scripture, and I think this is an example of it, and I'll give you a couple of other examples, where when we communicate, oftentimes we use figures of speech, and don't even think about it. Figures of speech that convey certain ideas, obviously. We use figures of speech, and we use a figure of speech similar to this one. We don't think about it because we're just so used to trying to communicate, and when we hear it, we don't think about it. But if you analyze it, and linguists and scholars and people that look at things carefully will elucidate it in order to better understand how we communicate, and that's what we need to do with Scripture as well. When he says he's not ashamed, he's not approaching it entirely from the negative. He's using a figure of speech that was common in the first century, I think at least, and he's using a figure of speech that we use all the time as well. Sometimes, and it has a particular name, I'll show it to you in a moment, sometimes we frame things with kind of a double negative. In other words, the idea of being ashamed of something is a negative, and then we use a negative to negate the negative. We do that. And I think that's what Paul is doing, and what it conveys is basically the opposite. In other words, he has this great confidence, you might say, or pride in the gospel. Because everything else that he's going to tell us about it has that positive idea. Now, let me give you an example. Those of you that are runners, you have run a, a marathon, and you might say, man, that was that marathon was not easy. Well, you used a double negative there, right? You're not talking about the, the idea that it's easy, because you negate it. Well, it's not a double negative, but it's you're negating an idea in order to convey another idea. Does that make sense? What you're really saying is you're not concentrating on how easy it is because you've negated it. The idea you're communicating is, man, that was hard. That marathon was hard. It was difficult. But you frame it in that way because we're, we're just used to doing that. You don't even think about it. So you're using a negation to communicate the other idea. And I think that's what we have here. Let me give you some examples of that. Well, first of all, let's look at the word itself. Term only occurs 11 times in the New Testament, and there's the Greek word. Not easy to pronounce, but that word, the meaning of it is to, to be ashamed of something. In, in any other context, usually unless it has the negative that negates it, like in this context, it just has the idea of being ashamed of something. Some activity or some idea. Even in Romans, notice what it says. Somebody look up Romans 6.21. Somebody look up 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 16. You got first one? Jenny, get 2 Timothy 1, 8. You won't need to read all of those verses, but the word occurs 11 times. It occurs three times in that 1 Timothy passage. And each of those, it's used in its normal, everyday sense of being ashamed of something. And in Romans 6, 21, he's talking about our past life. There's a lot of things in our past life that... We've all done or thought or said or 
in some way have been associated with some evil or sin that we're ashamed of. And that's the context of 621. You got it? And the things whereof you are now ashamed. That you're now ashamed. There you go. Past life. Read it again so it's clear. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those... Okay, that's your past life. Things that now, as a believer, you realize it's destructive, it's sinful, and in fact it's shameful. That's the basic meaning of the word there. And Second Timothy 1, 8 and 16. You got it, Jenny? Start with 8 and then skip to, I think, to verse 12. Second Timothy 1, 8. Therefore I want them to pray. No, you've got to Second Timothy 1, 8. 1, 8. 1, 8. It's all right. We're trying to be accurate today. Therefore, he bore of me. Okay, 12, I think. He says, I also fell that day. Okay, he's not ashamed. He negates it in that context. 16. Lord grant to the house of... And this is for us. He often remains. Okay, not ashamed. He puts it, frames it in the negative. Now, that may be an example of what we have here as well in, in the Romans passage. But the idea of being ashamed of something is the basic meaning. Now, that word means to be ashamed. Is it some way to be negated? Yeah, you put the no, the, the not in there. Or the ooh, yeah. There's a, there's a negating word in there. So the basic idea of being ashamed of something, and in this context, there's the figure of speech that linguists use, litotes. It's to make a positive affirmation by negating the opposite. And it's a common figure of speech that we use, and I gave you the example just a moment ago. It's not bad. Well, that's not bad. There you go. <laughs> not bad is bad. All right. You just used the figure of speech, and I didn't even catch it. All right. Probably a clear example, a clearer example, would be the Hebrews passages. Would somebody get both of those? Who's got it? Okay, David, you got it? Okay, 2.11. Get 11.16. You got it there? 2.11. Both he that sanctifieth. And they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause... Okay, God is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, does God have anything to be ashamed of? Absolutely nothing. But yet the writer frames God in that, in that way because he's giving... He's making a positive affirmation by negating the negative. Does that make sense? Okay. So God in no way has any association with anything that would be shameful. He's absolutely holy. But that's how it's presented because we understand what he's communicating by that figure of speech. So he's not associating or implying that in some way God may be ashamed of something because God has nothing to be ashamed of. But it's framed that way in a figure of speech to affirm the positive. See how that's in that passage? Going back to the word for, can it be called? <laughs> well, because of the prior context, I, yes, for this reason, I'm obligated, and then he's going to expand on that. 11.16 is very similar to 2.11, so you have it twice in the book of Hebrews. He's got it. Okay. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed of their God. Okay, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why would God be ashamed of anything? Well, he's not. It's a figure of speech. Does that make sense? See the figure? 
I think we have something similar in the Romans passage. So could it be that maybe part of considering that audience that assuming that should be that maybe the audience is assuming the images? Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. I would say that's part of it. It's good. Well, we see that too in our culture where you are shamed for being Christian. Yeah. And the culture shames us. And right. We in Christ, take that, are therefore not shamed because right. our, our relative culture is who shames those who follow Christ. Yeah. And even the more positive, in other words, we are even affirming it in a very positive way. Kind It actually In the Hebrews passages, yeah. To a much higher Yes. Because God is not ashamed. Because God is with us. Yes. Raises us, exactly. Very good point. And I think that's what we have in this passage. Paul has this great confidence in the gospel. And that's what he's going to elaborate on in the following part of it. And, and because of that confidence, he's eager. That's kind of what the four is for, right? Exactly. He's in the prior, prior context, he's eager because he has this great confidence. And now he's going to tell us why he has this great confidence. That's why on your outline there, I have the, the resolve from confidence. That's how I summarize, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Make sense? So, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and if I can just jump ahead here, for it is the power of God. And we're going to look at that in some detail. There's tremendous power in the gospel. And when that power is unleashed, as a result of communicating it, the Holy Spirit can take that and perform miraculous works. He can transform a heart. And that's the essence of what we have in, in, in the rest of the sentence there. But let's take a look at this word gospel, because I think sometimes in our flesh, in our unbelieving nature, we distort the meaning of it, and it's not clear, and sometimes the gospel is not clearly proclaimed. So let's, let's make that clear so that uh, we're not guilty of doing that. So let's take a look at that first major word. What is the gospel? And what I'm going to give you is just the essence. If you, if you look up all of the usages that occur in the New Testament, and you can find parallel passages in the Old Testament, you can come to some conclusions as to what is meant by that word. And like I've said before, virtually every theological word, in fact, everyone that I'm aware of, has a what kind of a meaning? Everyday meaning in the culture. It's not just, the Bible doesn't use special language. So the word gospel just comes from everyday usage. And if you can understand that everyday usage, it'll give you an idea of how the biblical writers are now adding meaning to it. And usually it's a spiritual or a theological meaning that is added. So let's take a look at that. The term, euangelion. Well, it's an everyday word there. It's an everyday word. What's wrong with that? Well, there's not a B in there, but yeah. Where we get the word evangelism, basically, from that Greek word. The noun occurs 77 times in the New Testament, the verb 55 times. So it's a common word. The basic meaning is good news. That's the basic meaning. That's how it was used. It would be used in the culture, hey, 
We had a baby this week. Good news. You had one not too long ago. Oh, she may be coming today. Good. Or something along the, the lines. We just bought a new house. We want to tell everybody about this new house that we bought. Good news. Or graduated from college. Good news. Put a lot of effort and I completed the course. Graduated from Good news. That's the whole everyday way the word was used. That particular word would be used in all of those contexts. Kind of the everyday sense. Good news. So, extra, extra. Read all about it. We have good news. Be something that you might, obviously, newspapers tend to do the bad news, but occasionally you might have some good news. Would it even be like a blue light, blue light special in yeah, the store? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Advertisers use the idea. So, that's the basic meaning, that's the everyday meaning, that's kind of the essence of what the, the meaning of the word means, good news. An example, even in the Bible, and, and by the way, when you do a word study, look for how that word might be used, not in its theological sense, but look for passages like this one, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, you got it? Linda's got it. But now Timothy has come to us and brought us good news and love. And reported that of us. Okay. Timothy came and he brought good news. It's it's not doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the gospel. It's just a good report, good news. This is the word that is used. Same word. It's used in its everyday sense. So Paul is using it in the normal way that you would use it in, in the culture. Just good news. Timothy brought it. It wasn't on a newspaper, but he had a report. Let me tell you what's going on over there. This is what's happening. It's exciting. It's great. It's good news. And that's how it's used in that First Thessalonians 3.6. Sometimes some of these words are taken by biblical writers and they are given an additional or given a theological or a spiritual meaning from that basic meaning. A technical, you might even say, a technical theological meaning. And in the Bible, the gospel, this is the essence of what it means. And I've written it out there so that we can be accurate. It's the good news concerning spiritual deliverance. The good news concerning God's deliverance or spiritual deliverance or eternal deliverance, you might say. That's what the gospel is all about. In other words, what does it take to be delivered from what the Bible describes as hell. Be delivered from eternal separation from God. Now, isn't that good news? That's ultimate good news. That's how it's used in its technical sense. Now, it has a few little, very not variations, but little nuances to it. But that's the essence of how the biblical writers have now added a theological idea. In other words, there's some good news that has to do with eternal things, that has to do with a relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The verb is like the noun. You can have it in a noun form, and the verb form uses similar lettering. It's to bring good news, or to announce good news, or sometimes it's translated to preach good news. Or to preach the gospel. If you see the little phrase, preach the gospel, sometimes it takes two words to communicate one Greek word. And if the verb is in that context, 
Sometimes it takes those two words. So the noun, the good news itself, the verb to tell about it, announce it, or to broadcast it. So that's the essence of the meaning there. The good news is great news when it comes to the spiritual aspect. In fact, most unbelievers are unaware of how destructive their future will be unless they accept and understand the good news, the gospel message. It's very important. Let's look at these passages just to stress the importance of the gospel message, particularly in a lost culture. And in all of these passages, we have the word, either the noun or the verb. Jesus himself, who wants to look up Mark 1, 1. Dave's got it. Craig's going to do. Why don't you look up the Luke passage, 434. And Dave, after you read verse 1, skip over to verses 14 and 15. You got those two? And while we're at it, somebody else look up Luke 9, 6. Jenny, some of you need, new people need to jump in. Here's a new easy one for some of you new people. These are all in Romans. All of these are in Romans for Paul. Who's got it? All right, you got it. Okay, Mark 1, 1, uh, David. This is how he begins the Gospel of Mark. And by the way, the Gospels are called Gospels. Why? The good news about who Jesus is. Good news. The beginning of the Gospel, Jesus Christ the Son. The beginning of the Gospel. In other words, the beginning of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Make sense? Skip to 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel, but saying, the time is filled, the kingdom of God is in the, the entire message of Jesus Christ is the good news concerning not only who he is, but how men come into a relationship with God. That's the essence of what Jesus taught and preached. He brought good news. Luke 4.34. You got that one? This is uh, someone that's possessed shouting at Jesus. Go away. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Where's the gospel in that one? Did I miss that one? I don't know, but that's 4.34. <laughs> How about so that's probably 4.33? What is that? But Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news. Oh, there it is. <laughs> just dyslectic a little bit there. I'm becoming dyslectic. It's the bad news. <laughs> All right. Four, what is it again? 43. All right. I don't know what went wrong last night. I was, uh, I was concentrating on accuracy. <laughs> Luke uh, 9, 6. So that's Jesus. Jesus, that was his message, the gospel message, 9, 6. These are the apostles, disciples at that point. That was their mission, preaching the gospel bringing the good news about who Jesus is, how men can come into a saving relationship. All right? Paul himself, and we don't have to go far, in 1-1, in fact, we don't even have to look these up, in 1-1, somebody did look them up. All right, go ahead. 1-1. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to the apostle and set apart for the gospel. Paul is set apart. In other words, his whole mission, his whole life, is to be set apart to broadcast the gospel. 
to share that good news. And in verse 9, go ahead, you want to read that one? Yes. God whom I serve in my spirit and gospel is my witness. This is his every activity is preaching the gospel. This is what, that's his service. Verse 14, he's compelled. The word is not in the context, but he's compelled. Read it. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. He's compelled or obligated. And then it does occur in verse 15. He's eager to what? Read that it. is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. There, okay, there's the verb form. Preach the gospel. In the Greek, it's just the one word. And now in verse 16, we don't need to read it because that's the verse we're looking at. He's not ashamed of it or he has this great confidence in it. So in the introduction, the idea occurs, what, five times and the word occurs four. You, then 17. It's used right there in 17. Yes, exactly. You want to read that one since you've got it. It says, For in the gospel a righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing and leading to faith. As it is written, the man who faith is just and upright shall live and shall live by faith. Okay, it seems like that's a paraphrase. I'm not sure the word. uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's an amplifier. And if you're not motivated enough in terms of its importance, someone look up Mark 10, 29. For those of you that are proclaimers of the gospel, a little encouragement here. Pat. So Jesus says to them, Surely I see there's no one, or brothers, or wives, or brothers, or gospel. And the gospel. And then if you keep reading, read the next verse. Who shall you see in this time, houses and Okay, so there's reward in present time, and there's future rewards in the millennial kingdom as well. Great rewards, hundredfold even, for those that are proclaimers of the gospel, those that go out and share the good news to a lost world. So it's very important, and there's much more we could talk about. Let's kind of look at what is that gospel message so we can be accurate in presenting it. In order for people to be aware and receptive to good news, they need to be aware, and we probably need to spend more time sharing the bad news. People need to be aware, otherwise they don't sense a sense of need for the good news. So we need to share the bad news. David, you have a comment? Um Kind of in reference to your thing in the newspaper, you know, it's our times having mostly bad. I'm sure under the Roman, that was, having good news was a rare thing indeed. Could have been, exactly. But, in order to understand the good news, we have to contrast it, and the unbeliever needs to be aware of the precarious condition he finds himself in. Now, in terms of the word God, find find the First Corinthians 15. Fifteen. Right. Yes. In fact, that'd be good to read. Why don't you look it up and we'll read it after you found it. But in sharing the good news, in communicating the good news, we need to start, and we're going to see in the book of Romans, that's how the book of Romans starts. The book of Romans lays out in some detail the bad news. And what is the bad news? Just to give you just a summary of it. Three. This is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you continue to read, and if you read the prior context, that puts all of us in a, a lacking relationship or without a relationship to God. And as a result, 
Eternity is at stake. All of eternity, the Bible can describe that, or we describe it theologically as hell. The Bible uses the lake of fire. Eternal separation. Because of our sin, and no one is immune. In other words, none of us is sinless, except Jesus Christ, the only sinless one. We all stand, and what Paul is going to develop in the book of Romans, from a legal perspective even, that when we stand before the ultimate judge of all of the universe, we are going to be pronounced guilty. And the first part of the book of Romans is we stand condemned for eternity. The unbeliever needs to understand that. You don't need to put it in as drastic terms, but that idea needs to be communicated. In other words, I am helpless. I am with without anything to get me out of this situation. There's nothing I can do. This is what I face in the future. And until a person realizes that, the good news doesn't make any sense to them. In other words, there's no need. You know, I'm fine. I seem okay. I'm happy. I've got a good job. I've got everything I need. What do I need to think about? We need to understand and we need to communicate the bad news first in order to understand the good news. And we have another summary of it. At the heart of the book of Romans, the next two verses, he wants to read those next two in Romans 3, 24 and 25. There's a lot of theological words in there, but the essence of it, I'll summarize after you read it. You got it? But they are justified free by his grace, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put display at his death, the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over this previously. Remember, he's in a court of law, so he's using a lot of legal terms. Some of them we need to look at in some detail carefully, but the essence of what he's saying, Jesus was displayed publicly. What is that? Crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross in order that those that believe this good news, notice there's faith in there as well, prior and later, we'll look at the next passage, but Jesus died on the cross in our place, essentially, what he's saying there, that satisfied, that's propitiation, that satisfied all the legal requirements of God, when he died on the cross, died for you and I, he took our place, displayed publicly, as it says there, and when it talks about the righteousness in that context, being justified, that's a key term. In other words, he paid the penalty, so now when God looks at us, we can stand justified before him, or you might use the word acquitted. We are Now our sins have been removed, And now we can stand before him in a proper standing or a righteous standing. Maybe I'll go and read to 26, too. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) We're not done yet. Yeah. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. In other words, he satisfied all the legal requirements of God in his blood. In other words, he died. He shed his blood through faith. There it is. That's the next one that we'll look at and we'll expand upon it in a moment. He was a demonstration. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. In other words, God is perfectly righteous. He can set us free 
not just by like a magic wand, but because all of his justice is satisfied on what Jesus did on the cross. Does that make sense? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, he's dealing in a new way in Jesus Christ. So that's the essence of the good news. Believing that everything that is required to have a relationship with God, Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that Romans 15 also includes the resurrection. You want to read that one? The first one says, No, I make known to you, brethren. There's the gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel. The good news. Jumping down to verse 3, it says, For I deliver to you as first important, I also receive Christ died for us. Yes. According to the scriptures. Yes. And then he was buried. And then he was raised in the third day, according to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And then he appeared to Jesus. Okay, death and resurrection satisfied all the legal requirements of God in terms of giving us a relationship so we can stand before him in a righteous position. Um, Jeremy. I've been doing this other study, and it, it, it brings out, I just want to read from John 1, 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what... Another name for this bad news here is truth. I, I just wanted to say that, right? That's And, and then right. the good news is grace. The truth of our no, lack of position, position, lack right. of righteousness. Yeah. Exactly. So I just wanted to bring that, that, that sort of, you know, the grace and truth there, too. Right. And Mary Lee wants to read on. Let's not skip verse 26, so you got it? <laughs> I told you we are going to go on. Well, okay, that could be us. Pardon me? 15. Okay. 320, go ahead and read 26, and then we'll get in 27 and 28. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who has faith, faith alone. Did you do 27 and 28? Can you do it? Where is the, where then is boasting? It is excluded. In other words, there's nothing we can boast about. We have no part in this. By what kind of law? By one of, of works? No. No on works. On the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay. Faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Nothing that we do, it all is in God's hands. That is the heart of the gospel. We receive salvation. We receive eternal life. We receive forgiveness of sins solely on what Christ has done and nothing that we add. It doesn't include, doesn't matter how many times you go to church, no matter how consistent. Now, I was raised in the Catholic Church and that was emphasized, but... That has no part in my salvation. Now, it's not a bad thing, but it does not add one iota to salvation. And it also removes, because if you have a God who just says, oh, well, it didn't matter. That's right. You have to deal with sin. You can deal with exactly. it. Exactly. In my talking with Muslim students, sometimes they say, well, he just, he just, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like, well, no, it, it does, does matter. It does matter. Absolutely. You cannot sin. You can do something like that and right. not have payment for it. You know, it's true. You hear someone say, somebody has to pay. Definitely. Yes. And somebody did. The culture will say, somebody has to pay for this. And somebody did on somebody the cross. Did. Right. Regardless. So you can't add anything. And it gets distorted in that by nature we think, well, it can't be so easy. It can't be so free. But it's by grace. 
the definition of grace, unmerited favor. In other words, we don't deserve it. Our tendency is to add things. We want to do something, whether it's little things like baptism. And there are some denominations that say you have to be baptized in order to receive the salvation. Or going forward in a meeting, or signing a card, or or salvation beginning, and then you have to maintain it by works afterwards. No, it's by faith and faith alone, simply accepting and believing what God has said concerning what God has done on the cross. I have one. Yes. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Yes. That we might be made the righteousness of him. Exactly. And the moment we believe that, trust in that, he transforms our heart. And the Bible uses the word regeneration. gives us new life. And at that instant, we our eternity is settled. We can't add a single iota to it. Now, we're sometimes raised in this idea that you have to continue or you have to do these things. That's not the biblical idea. Bill? It's very interesting. The reason that it is free is that it is absolutely impossible in a way. That's right. But the barrier is so high for us to earn salvation that it has to be. Yes. There is no other path. There's no other way. Somebody get four, three, and five as well. This, uh, the thing about uh, Adam and Eve, and then they went negative, and then propitiation makes justification. Justification makes us plus. Yeah, there's a mathematical, if you want a mathematical explanation. She's the mathematician of the group. Right. Negatives, zero, positives. We don't want it to be zero. Justification, we'll jump ahead here, justification involves two things. The removal of the negative, that's forgiveness of sins, and the addition of righteous standing, righteousness. That's justification. We'll talk about that when we get there. But that's essentially the gospel message. Who's got four, three? I'll, I'll read Pat, it. It's right. Pat's got it. <laughs> He's going to read it regardless. <laughs> For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was... Even Abraham, before the law. Abraham believed what God had promised concerning a future Messiah, and he was what? To him who works, who wages on Okay. Yes, but, yes. but to him who does not believes on the ungodly, his faith. His faith oh. is credited to him as righteousness. Four, three through five. So these are all in Romans. So this is the heart of the book of Romans. So this is sharing the gospel. This is the how we share it. Share bad news where we are, and this is true of all of us. Until we trust in him, then we're wiped clean in terms of sin. And that includes future sin as well. The good news is that Jesus is our substitute. We read some of those verses. He took all the judgment. And when we simply put our faith and trust in that, we are justified. We have a right standing and we're forgiven of sin. That's the message that we want to proclaim to a lost world. Good news. Is that clear? Even though I kind of muddied the scriptures up. All right. Pat, at least brought our attention. Good. Pat, just had a comment. Um, so I can see how the way I've been going about the wrong way, there's good news without really identifying the bad news that one would see. The- yeah. Just think about it in terms of uh, even the world. What does the world do in, in advertising? 
You have this desperate need for this product. You cannot live without this product. Your life is incomplete without this product. You have to realize that you have to need it, otherwise you, you don't want it. You don't go buy it. And then once they've aroused your, man, I need that. Now you go out and get it. You, you really have to show their nose. No loophole. Well, I'll find a loophole. is the first half of the time. This is it. are in jail. Yep. And there's no loophole. In fact, yeah. And in fact, you alluded to another passage that kind of gives the same idea. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says. This is before you trusted in Christ. A dead person can't do anything to earn salvation. All right? It's on the basis of grace and faith alone, trusting that Jesus did everything for us. That's the message. That's the news that we have. And that's why we can have confidence in the next phrase that we'll look at. We'll have to reserve that for next week. The reason he has that confidence, it's because of this power. And we'll look at that next time and expand upon what that means. This gospel, it is the power of God. This is the only thing that can transform a life. And it's tremendous power. I'm going to use some illustrations there from from the scriptures themselves. It's not explosive power, but it's an inherent, omnipotent power. That's the point I'm going to get at, and I'm going to explain that. It's inherent power that only God has. We have none of it. God's the one that infuses us and infuses the gospel message with power to convert. We'll talk about that next time. Yep, no, I'll show that next time. I'll show this one as well. It's inherent power. Closing thought. Concentrate on a clear presentation of the gospel message. Not manipulating the unbeliever. Our tendency is to pressure them. Our tendency is to overdo some things or manipulate them in some way. Concentrate on a clear presentation of the gospel. The gospel itself has the power to convert. Bill. It's it's uh, also helpful to realize, as both Billy Grand Crusade and Navigators have found, that on the average it takes seven exposures to the gospel. Yeah, because our hearts... We never know what we're in for seven. Our hearts resist it. Who wants to close for us? Jenny. Amen. Amen.